Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 13th of September 2010. Sorry for the delay there, but there's a problem at RBN side trying to get through to me. Uh, They're getting a busy signal even though there's no one on the line. So it's something in between, I guess, again. We get all these problems now with the phones. I've got problems with the satellite. They've worked and they put me on a choke. The sort of Yahoo put me on a choke as well. So it's uh, these are the days of freedom, obviously, as they just go ahead with their plans and start cutting off those that they don't really want to say anything to the general public. So this is the, say the September the 13th, and um, tonight I'm not going to read much of the stories because I'm so sick of stories. You know, everyone's got a computer. Uh, you'll find the same stories are being recycled across the net. And where do they come from? It comes from the mainstream pages. Uh, of the news companies, and everyone copies them and goes ooh and ah and passes them around and, and, and then go tut, tut, tut and stuff like that. And then it's forgotten tomorrow because there's another bunch of new things you won't like as well. Rather than, than do that, I prefer really just to, to go into the system itself, and that's the key to it all. You know, years ago, many years ago, when the, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations in its own magazine, that the magazine which is called Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, published an article where they said that uh, they, you know, they, them, <laughs> the big they, them, uh, had uh, decided that they wouldn't take the American Constitution head-on. It was too much of a hassle to fight it through the courts to change it. So they would just go around it, basically. And that's what's happened in pretty well every country, not just the U.S., uh, we've found a new system, a parallel government, of course, created this parallel system to ground all existing laws. Now, when really you're under a system which can make up a new idea, or even not even a law, a policy, you might say, because they don't bore us much with laws now, they call them policies. It's our policy for this, it's our policy to do that. Um, then it's no, you're under a lawless system. And that's supposedly what... Uh, Constitutions were meant to stop. If you're not under the rule of law, which has to go through a lawful process to be changed, then you're under a tyranny, obviously. And again, Jefferson did talk about that. He, he said the same thing, that when you see the changes of the House, meaning the, the parties, uh, but you see as the same agenda continue one after the other, then you know you will, you are under tyranny. And that's, of course, how it's really been for an awful long time. The, the Constitution of the U.S. gave too many rights to the people, they claim. It was too cumbersome. They had to really go through so many processes and checks and balances to take rights away uh, that they couldn't just do it the old-fashioned way. Too t- t- time-consuming, too expensive, so they just literally ignored it, went round it, and uh, they're continuing with new policies, basically. Plus, they sign UN treaties, and they write those treaties into law in every national country. 
Not that, we're, not that we really have any nations anymore. It's a bit of a fallacy. We see we're already global. We are global. They've done it a while ago, in fact. You can look at the, the mess of Europe that was comprised of small countries and, and some larger ones too. And here they are getting dictates from a tiny little place called Belgium. And where Brussels, the, the capital is, and, and the big building, the new parliament building, um, it becomes more and more remote. You see, under a global system, uh, you're as well as having your main parliament for the world in Timbuktu. And the same with the European Union parliament. It could be in Timbuktu. It's so remote already that, that people can't really put it in their heads. It's not on their land. It's not in their land. It's somewhere way over yonder. You know, the places you normally fight wars and stuff like that. So it's too remote and there's no recourse to it because it's not set up to be what you think of as a representative uh, type of parliament. It's not representative at all. It's authoritarian. And most folk haven't really got it through their heads yet uh, that we've been under an authoritarian system for quite a long time. Definitely before even 9-11 came along, we had anti-terrorism bills put forth through Canada, uh, Britain, uh, across a lot of European countries. We had them put through the U.S. too under Clinton. And bingo, 9-11 comes along and then they went to town with the, the Homeland Security bills and so on. Uh, and they did the same thing across the whole world. Since when did, does a whole world go through the same process, the same laws, uh, treaties and so on that they've all signed together to enforce each other's new terrorism laws at the same time. That took years and years and years of planning, negotiations, coordination between different countries and bureaucrats to get that even ready. Most folk, again, think we're living day by day. Things happen and politicians deal with it. There's, there's nothing of the kind. Nothing, nothing of the kind. And it's the same too with financial crashes and all the rest of it. When, when you get your crash, remember, a crash is nothing. It's when someone tells you to lose confidence in the stock market and then everyone panics and pulls out. It's the first law of economics. You do not tell the customers bad news because it's all based, based on greed and and the hope to get lots of profits, you see. You don't want to tell them bad news. And that's the first law. Everybody who is an economist has been taught that in university. Don't say bad news to customers because you must keep faith. The only thing that keeps it going is faith. And it's all bubbles anyway and rip-offs and cons. And um, who did they get to announce it to the, to the people? The, the President of the United States. You couldn't get any higher than that to announce it to the public that uh, this, there's a coming depression, it could be worse than the, the Great Depression, and bingo, everybody pulls their money out of the stock market, and they got what they wanted. That was planned. That was obviously planned. And they could get the same racket going, because that's all it is, as a racket for another 20 or 30 years, if they wanted to. But now it's time to bring us down to austerity, you see. And plus, you must rise up, uh, raise up the IMF, to its proper position, the position it was meant to take after World War II, and the World Bank, of course, as well. You're getting the whole world's been restructured for the new global society. They don't have any problems really with uh, the people in the countries they've already conquered in the Western countries. They're dumbed down. They're deculturalized. They have no history 
to speak of under their belts because it's not really taught in school. And um, John Dewey, of course, was the one, one of the many of them who were put across Europe and the U.S. to bring in this new schooling system for the new Soviet-type regime, where students would be taught exactly what they were meant to be taught and they believe what they're meant to, to believe for life, it's scientific indoctrination. It has worked very well. And then they went to town giving you a cult, rapid cultural change to destroy all the things that kept your old society together, and that was man, wife, family, and so on. And they replaced it with social workers and social work departments and many, many other things. And again, it's all the hub of all this is the United Nations, because that was their job. They set up the United Nations. They, of course, was the Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, who was set up by international bankers in London, like Lord Milner. And they set it up to do exactly as it's doing. It's the hub. It's the hub to make sure that everything is coordinated across the planet at the right time uh, together to bring us all under this new system. And all we're doing at the moment in the Middle East and um, in other countries is to standardize them into the same system. You cannot have uh, competing systems or even parallel systems outside their parallel system uh, in this agenda. And that, that goes for religions as well, well, for most. And everything that is still in existence, even in religion, is almost unrecognizable to what it was a hundred years ago. Everything's changed within those religions, and those in the people in the religions don't even know it themselves, because they've adapted and adapted and adapted too, as technology is pushed forward, as events are forced upon them, and I mean forced, and they're all being trained into a world of no privacy, etc., etc., etc. And that's where we are today. Now, most folk don't mind. I mentioned that last week. Most folk like like socialism. Uh, they have been raised to think that way, uh, even if they don't know what socialism means. They are socialist, and they they truly believe that there are people with you know who are born with suits and ties, very expensive suits and ties, uh, from special wombs, who are put there to deal with all the big problems of the world for them so that they can work their few days per week and play themselves. And that's perpetual childhood, of course. But lots of them truly like it. And even a lot of them that, that pretend they're, they're in the patriot business are really um, playing a conspiracy theory because there's big money to be made in conspiracy theory, you see. It's endless. It's how far can your imagination go as far as you want So, as, as time goes on, it gets harder and harder for people to even remember what they're fighting for, because they are also adapting into the changes along with the people they're trying to warn consistently, being updated. And um, it's the old story, too. Lots of uh, I get so many emails, and I have it down through the years, is, when does it all finally happen, like some great Armageddon? They're always waiting for some great massive change to happen at once that changes everything. Well, you, you don't need a, a great Armageddon. You've been living through it your entire lives. That's the key to it, and adapting to the changes. We're the most adaptable species on the planet. Now, Skinner, behaviorists, all these characters uh, were highly paid to do this kind of stuff, um, 
on humans, on society. They're paid by governments and military establishments to find better ways to indoctrinate us, manage us and manipulate us without us even knowing or caring. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Just talking about how people perceive what's happening, how they comprehend what's happening even, and how they perceive the changes themselves. Most of them see little bits of changes, they talk about them, but then they forget about them. They don't realize that all of these changes accumulate to the big change that they're talking about. It's already happened. And they keep adapting and adapting. Years ago, um, people in the Patriot movement always thought that there would be one final battle of good guys and bad guys uh, one day on a kind of field of battle with flags and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of how they pictured it because Hollywood has given you that impression of good guys, bad guys, and good guys always for some reason. I don't know why, but they always win in the movies, you see. And it's wish fulfillment of fantasy. That's why they give you that. That's because there's no reason why the bad guys can't win especially if they have more firepower and, and so on than you do. So, it isn't going to be like that. If that ever happens, it'll be because people are starving. And that'll be the only reason that start fighting anyway. And then probably start fighting each other for food and basic necessities for survival. That's a tragedy of it too. The world was taken over a long, long time ago. And it has little bumps in history where you'll see an elite emerging and it's almost like they, they, they submerge once they've done it for a little while then come up again under another name and they do it across the whole world. So we only get English versions of history and in the English language. We don't realize it's happened in all the countries of Europe. If you go down through their histories, two these little parallel groups, these special elitist types who are incredibly wealthy and who have the ability to do incredible planning and micromanagement of societies and then disappear again and and another bunch come up. It's really the continuation of the same thing worldwide by one organization. They used to call it the underground stream. And they're the stream of knowledge, you see. They have the knowledge of the ages, they call it, wisdom. They're talking about real knowledge of real histories and real sciences too. Well-funded and well... If you want power and you achieve power, you never give it away unless you're crazy, you see. And that's that happened an awful long time ago with various groups who competed openly at one, one time for the, the, the throne, basically, and eventually one was successful. So we really have been under a, a system of... Uh, apart from the banking system of debt and national debt and all the rest of it for an awful long time. And as I say, if you want to understand economics and from the banker's point of view, you must remember that you and everyone around you happens to be an economic unit. That's how they define you. That's the only purpose you have is to produce and pay taxes and so on. You have no other function. They don't, they don't like to look at you as just as a pet. 
that they become fond of. No, you, that's all you are really is a, an e- economic producer. Today, uh, now that they've really conquered the planet, I would say, uh, they're now taking in uh, most of the profit. They're cutting off the health care around the world that they set up. Uh, they, and they did set it up too, to get the money rolling, to give more government agencies more power. And then they take their, the real care away from you, but keep the agencies there. So I would say that even with the things that Lenin talked about to do with this group have been accomplished. It's all been accomplished, and it's, it's, it's work to plan. They don't realize either the Macy group and other groups were combined during World War II and afterwards to work under, under the directions of the U.S. president and the British prime minister to find ways to manipulate whole societies. That was their job, paid millions of dollars to do it, and salaries, literally, each, uh, to find ways to um, control all of society without society even being aware they were being controlled at all. And we, th- we know that, because I've, I've gone over the nudge process of, uh, of uh, Sunstein and others to do with computers, I've talked to programmers and computers who also find ways to nudge people into the next page. And you, also, you get this example every day on a page that you look up on the internet, it'll say, oh, most folk who read this also read that. Well, see, they, they're, lump, they're already guiding you where you're supposed to go next. But before we had the computer, they were already nudging us in many, many other ways, you see. And how to think, what to think. And the big mainstream media was one of the big players, naturally. And the other one, of course, was television. And before that, it was radio. And we don't realize how many big, important people uh, spent their whole lives just like the... And they are lifelong workers till they die, like Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell, who worked with the Macy Group, who helped formulate the computer language uh, as far back as the 1940s or before. And he was working on mathematics and the language of mathematics around that, around even the 1930s for something to come, which he knew would come. And this is the key to it all. They knew what's, they know what's coming. They not only know what's coming, they know what can be done, which makes me think they already had done this kind of stuff. The technology had already been done back then. That's what I truly think. Because you can't set up these plans and get all these people working towards one agenda if, uh, if the very item the, the, or the very creation that you hope to come along doesn't come along at all. It all fall apart. These guys knew. These guys knew in the 30s you were going to get something called a computer. And they'd already created the language for it. Back with more after these messages. Listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the matrix. Bertrand Russell, as I say, was quite an interesting guy. He was all over the map, all over the world. He was sent to China by Britain to help uh, teach communism in the universities before they were communist. He ended up working for MI5 during World War II 
along with other authors, because most of the authors that are well-known were all working for MI5. And I've documented this stuff and even read from some of the declassified information given out by governments since about the 1970s. They haven't given us 70s onwards. They've given us some of this stuff up until the 70s. And every major author of novels, fiction, non-fiction and so on were all members of MI5. Quite something, eh? And the CIA for the U.S. And the CIA was overseeing all of it and funding it, naturally, because they got a bigger tax base. So anyway, they get around these controllers and they know where they're going. And again, they all belong to the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations. That's another thing as well. Now, in the impact of science on society, Russell talks about the the rapidity of change, something that H.G. Wells talked about 20 years before this book, this was the 1950s, I think. And uh, they knew that uh, there would be a backlash from society if they changed things too quickly. So they'd have to slow it down to an extent, take the pulse of the people. They do it by they did it by polls back then, and today, of course, they don't have to because they monitor the internet and how you're what you're thinking, what you're looking at, and so on. How you're chatting, they know exactly uh, if it's, if you're ready for the next little push. You see, but he says here on page one twenty two, he says rapidity of change, however, is only one of the causes of psychological discontent. See the whole problem of keeping people's kind of happy even if they're slaves is, is to keep them fairly contented. He said another perhaps more potent is the increasing subordination of individuals to organizations which so far has seemed to be an unavoidable feature of a scientific society. It's like all these gated communities and you have your your uh, various panels and committees that run your streets and your little area and then you can't paint your house a certain color or the door or they, they fine you and all this kind of stuff. So you're already in a sobertized system. Whether you pay for it or whether you rent it, it makes no difference. It's all the same thing. You have committees running your lives. You have social work departments running your children and teachers uh, basically pushing the little Johnny get put on drugs because he's asking too many questions at school. Yet you have associations really running your life. And then he goes on to talk about factories and how factories work and so on. He says, there's no possibility in working hours of either adventure or idleness. And even outside working hours, the opportunities are few that most people, for most people. Getting from home to work and from work to home takes time. And at the end of the day, there is neither time nor money for anything very exciting. So what do folk do today? They, they zonk out in front of the television with their mouths open, you know, and, and just flick the channel and... Um, and that they don't talk to each other because, again, one of the definitions of, uh, of, of technique and science is something placed in the environment that alters human behavior. Remember that. So folk don't talk. They sit there and stare at something and they respond to laughter prompts or crying prompts or whatever. But it's all prompts like canned laughter. But he says... Um, and what is true of workers in a factory is true in a greater or, or lesser degree for most people in a well-organized modern community. Most people, when they are no longer quite young, find themselves in a groove like the main, like the man in Limerick, not in a bus, not in a bus, but in a tram. Energetic people become rebellious. Quiet people become apathetic. Now remember, he promoted apathy as well in order to get the changes through. And that has happened too in society. Part of the bringing on the, the financial depression now too, and the joblessness is to create, and the homelessness is to create apathy. When you're apathetic, you're out of the fighting. You you give up psychologically, so it's part of psychological warfare. 
It says here too, war, if it comes, offers an escape. And that's true too. You can become so apathetic. You see no future for yourself at all. You're a nobody. But of course, in comes a guy to recruit you. And you can suddenly be a somebody. Ooh, yeah, go off and kill. For the boss, same guys are destroying you. <laughs> it says, are you more or less happy now than during the war? He says, this is a questionnaire you wanted to put out. This question should be um, addressed to both men and women. I think it would be found that a very considerable percentage are less happy now than then. This state of affairs presents a psychological problem, which is too little considered by statesmen. It is hopeless to construct schemes for preserving peace if most people would rather not preserve it. As they do not admit it, and perhaps do not know that they would prefer war, that are unconscious will lead them to prefer species schemes that are not likely to achieve their ostensible purpose. Now, he and the whole bunch, of course, that uh, brought up this wonderful Sovietized, communistic, altruistic uh, United Nations, um, really believed that the general populations caused wars. Remember, he's Lord Bertrand Russell, his, his kin and all the rest of it, the guys who declared wars. And in countries where the general population didn't even know existed. So so that's how they turn around like good psychopaths and they blame the public for wars because they can't stand um, scientific culture, scientific societies and because they're crammed together and, and ruled by organizations, they can't handle it. Therefore, they'd, they want war as a form of escape. This is what he's trying to say. They blame the victim. These, these psychopathic creeps. And then he goes on to say, A society is not stable unless it is on the whole satisfactory to the holders of power, and the holders of power are not exposed to the risk of successful revolution. But it's also not stable if the holders of power embark upon rash adventures, such as those of the Kaiser and Hitler. These are the Scylla and Carbidus of the psychological problem, and to steer between them is not easy. Adventure, yes, but not adventure inspired by destructive passions. So that's what he goes on to say. Anyway, as I say, they can't stand the fact that uh, ordinary folk are not dumbed down enough and compliant and are happy living in their cages, their overcrowded cages, which they now call cities. Now, these characters, like Russell himself and his family, prospered off the cities, because they pushed these, um, the construction of the manufacturing cities, uh, and that's how a lot of them made their money. A lot of them, in fact, got knighted at that time because they, they raked in millions of pounds. And that's one of the reasons you get knighted, if you don't give a direct payment. Now, there's another art, uh, book here, and it's called um, Brzezinski. That's the guy I was trying to think of. Between Two Ages, it's called. And it says, um, eventually these changes and many others, including some that more directly affect the personality and quality of the human being himself, will make the technotronic society, this is the society we're in now, technotronic, as different from the industrial as the industrial was from the agrarian. And just as the shift from agrarian economy and feudal politics towards an industrial society and political systems based on the individual's emotional identification with the nation-state give rise to contemporary international politics, so the appearance of the technotronic society reflects the onset of a new relationship between man and his expanded global reality. He says, this new relationship is a tense one, 
man has still to define it conceptually and thereby render it comprehensible to himself. Our expanded global reality is simultaneously fragmenting uh, it's, uh, and thrusting itself upon us. The result of the coincident explosion and implosion is not only insecurity and tension, but also an entirely novel perception of what many still call international affairs. Life seems to lack cohesion as environment rapidity alters and human beings become increasingly manipulable and malleable. So we're becoming manipulable and malleable. We are already. It's like that part's over. Everything seems more transitory and temporary, external reality more fluid than solid, the human being more synthetic than authentic. And people are. They copy everything they see on television. They dress like television. They talk. Yeah, they actually talk like the guys on television. They use the phrases, even adopt the accent from Hollywood. Since even our senses perceive an entirely novel reality, one of our own making, but nevertheless, in terms of our sensations, are quite real. More important, there is already widespread concern about the possibility of biological and chemical tampering with what has until now been considered the mutable essence of man. Human conduct, some argue, can be predetermined and subjected to deliberate control. Man is increasingly acquiring the capacity to determine the sex of his children, to affect through, uh, through drugs, uh, to, to determine the sex of his children, to, to affect through drugs the extent of their intelligence and to modify and control their personalities. Speaking of, and there's the big thing. Now, what politician and group and power groups going to, going to uh, give that one up eh, when they get the chance to modify and control personalities of an up and coming future generation? Of course, that they're right in, they're already into it, already. This is speaking of a future adult at most only decades away. An experimenter in intelligence control asserted, "I foresee the time when we shall have the means, and therefore inevitably the temptation to manipulate the behaviour and intellectual uh, functioning of all the people through environmental and biochemical manipulation of the brain." And that's the track. That is the track they've been working on before this was written. And of course, as I say, um, this author, Brzezinski, knew that at the time. He says, there's an open question of whether technology and science will in fact increase the options open to the individual. Under the headline, study terms, technology, a boon to individualism. The New York Times reported the preliminary conclusions of a Harvard project on the social significance of science. Its particular our participants were quoted as per a concluding that most Americans have a greater range of personal choice, wider experience, and a more highly developed sense of self-worth than ever before. This may be so, but a judgment of this sort rests essentially on our intuitive and comparative insight, insight into the present and past states of minds of Americans. In this connection, a world of warning, warning from an acute observer is highly relevant. It behooves us to examine carefully the degree of validity as measured by actual behavior of the statement that a benefit of technology will be to increase the number of options and alternatives the individual can choose from. In principle, it could. In fact, the individual may use any number of psychological devices to avoid the discomfort of information overload and thereby keep the range of alternatives to which he responds much narrower than which that which technology in principle makes available to him. 
So they're already wondering before they gave you the internet how the, how the information overload, which they would give you, because they knew what it would do to you, but how you would react to it. And if you would find ways, they had think tanks working on this. How will they act if we do this? Like, like we're rats in a cage, you see. How will the rats act if we do this to them? How will they act if they, we do that to them? And they'd work out all these things way ahead of the t- of, of even giving you the darn thing that was going to cause it in the first place. Would you find ways to close your mind to it, to stay off the internet? Because they had it planned before that we'd even heard of it. They had it planned, uh, that, um, it was going to rule your lives, that banking, everything, and government would talk directly to you through that little screen there in front of you. That was planned way back then, long before the 70s, when this book was written. It says, uh, in other words, the real questions are how the individual will exploit the options, to what extent will he be intellectually and psychologically prepared to exploit them, and in what way a society as a whole will create a favorable setting for taking advantage of these options. Their availability is not of itself proof of a greater sense of freedom or self-worth. Instead of accepting himself as a spontaneous given, man in the most advanced societies may become more concerned with conscious self-analysis according to external explicit criteria, such as what is his IQ? Well, that was one of the first things he put on the internet for you to play with, right? What are my aptitudes, personality traits, uh, capabilities, attractions, and negative features? Well, they've also got your gene type there, too, if you want to go and find it. So, in other words, they they, they planned all this stuff way before they gave you the first uh, crappy little computer, uh, which they knew was a crappy little computer because they have given you what you're using right now uh, back then if they wanted to. But you see, we'd have been a bit suspicious. Where did this suddenly all come from? And you'd be a bit more suspicious to realize, like a sudden shock effect, that it gathers all your data right off the bat. So they work you into it with, with crappy computers and a little bit better uh, a year or two later and a bit better and so on. And, and you adapt like any animal will. And that's how we're treated. It's very, very simple Pavlovian techniques, basically. And, and he goes on to talk about the identity, uh, where people lose their identity. Because this whole article really is about um, individualism versus the, the social group. And well, you, will be, you will become part of social groups, you see. It says, Julian Huxley was perhaps guilty of only slight exaggerations when he warned that overcrowding in man and animals leads to distorted neurotic and downright pathological behavior. Uh, can we be sure that the same is true in principle of people? City life today is definitely leading to, make, to mental disease. Right? They know this. They've always known this. City life today is definitely leading to mass mental disease, to growing vandalism and possible eruptions of mass violence. That's why they started creating the internal police forces, which are really militarized forces with their swapped um, uh, uh, uniforms and so on uh, back then. And they brought in the war on drugs. That was all part of the real reason to, to create this mass of special cops and, and armies inside your countries. That was what it was for. Because they knew, as, as the plan was to cram you more and more of you into these cities, it still is actually, they've even passed a bill recently in the U.S. Senate, uh, or the Congress, to even uh, really, really speed up the process of getting folk off the land and into these overcrowded cities. And they've already got the armies set up to deal with them once they're in there, and they're all neurotic. Uh, so there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, you'll find that... Um, 
this, these, these studies have been ongoing for so long, and we're not given most of it until they publish it after the fact years later and pretend it's, it's just they've just figured this out now. This is old, old stuff. We've all taken crammed into these overcrowded cities, and uh, they have means of dealing with it all. They have all these social work departments to deal with all the people let out of prisons. They end up in prisons for all kinds of weird things. Some are simple, some are out of poverty, the rest are out of perversions of many, many kinds, which proliferate in, in cities. And then you have the culture industry, which is also uh, promoting all the things which make you kind of pathological. And people, it's like monkey see, monkey do. People copy what they see and think no more about it. So there's nothing happening in today's society, that's what I'm trying to say, that wasn't planned long before you were born. With even the think tanks going over the the, uh, the responses of the general public to different parts of the agenda they had planned, and when they set up the United Nations, they also talked about setting up super regions, and then super city states, and again depopulating the rural areas, which they claimed even then would be unsustainable. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix, just tying a few things together to show you there's much more to this whole new world order than most folk think. It isn't just a matter of a few bad guys. You were talking about hundreds of agencies, think tanks and incredible funding from the world's bankers and foundations who also own the banks basically and the NGOs, the organizations which rule over you. Now there's a caller from Arizona. It's Mike. Are you there, Mike? Uh, hi, Alan. Yes. Um, we just wanted to start off real fast. I'd like to encourage all of the listeners to buy your books and donate. I've gotten the books, and they've been extremely helpful to myself. But I do have one question for you. Yeah. Uh, I've always been a little bit of a cultural outsider, but especially since delving into this and learning what's really going on, I feel that I'm completely disconnected from my own culture, you know, mm-hmm. living in the United States. Do you have any suggestions from us who might feel alienated to help keep our own sanity so we don't sound like nutcases or even, you know, possibly start to question ourselves? Yeah, it's a matter of eventually you'll find that you don't even want to belong to any kind of group unless they've come the same journey and found things out by themselves to the same level. See, the key to everything is you have followers and you have leaders and then you have the individual. The individual goes his own, own search and he will find and rationalize and work out things for himself to know what reality is. Then they'll have lots of followers who will follow that person, but they themselves understand on an intellectual level what the person is saying at the top, but they, don't, they haven't actually experienced those things or, or, or actually come through and, and really experienced the, 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 the truths of, of what the person is teaching them. Uh, so you have to learn to live in your own head to an extent, and it's not easy. You have to be polite to people. You have to, and they're very decent people. You know that yourself. The people around you are decent people. They're polite and and, and good and all the rest of it, but they're, they're really into what we call uh, the world or the world that's been presented to them at this moment. And, um, and they like a lot of it. They like a lot of what's been given to them, even though it's kind of like addicting you to a poison that's eventually going to kill you. you know? Okay, I, yeah. So I was wondering about that because I know some people have looked at me strangely because I'll start stepping through various just small things. 
that mm-hmm. they can agree that I'm correct on, but I try to lead them to larger conclusions, and yeah. they'll mentally shut down on me. That's right. They will shut down. And I don't know if you saw in the movie, it was uh, Brave New World, and you, you'll find it's like the savage who's brought into this very advanced society, and he's telling them what values are, and these people literally... Uh, were very polite and listened to him politely, but they, they, they thought how quaint and smiled, and but they couldn't get what he was actually saying. They, they were so transformed into a different, a different lifestyle, a different mindset, and they could never ever adjust to his mindset. Uh, well, that's where you are today with your own um, values and so on, because you've gone, you went through that search. You can see the people adapting en masse, even people you know. Uh, are adapting into the new system en masse, deeper and deeper into it. In fact, uh, if there would ever be a complaint, it would be if the if a lot of the internet rights were pulled away from them, that's the only time they would complain. You know, in Canada, the only time there was a mass um, bombardment of Ottawa, the parliament, with uh, letters and complaints, the only time that ever happened was when they deregulated the television cable industry and were going to sock it to the different peoples, especially the elderly, uh, and they'd have to pay a lot more for their television. That was the only t- only thing they ever stood up for together was don't take our TV away. And it's the same thing with the net. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You either become an individual or, 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 or yeah, uh, go into the mass, be one of them, and, and lose your identity or your ability to even have an identity completely. You'll be a very nice person, but you'll be very dumbed down. You'll, you'll be worse than, uh, than most animals. And that's the truth. From Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.